Science doesn't tell us how to live. That belongs to the general public. But once you decide on the kind of world you want to have and the kind of world ocean we want, then we would be well to heed the advice that the late Nobel laureate Richard Feynman said, you don't improve the quality of a technical decision by asking a lot of uninformed people. Welcome everybody to the CS Many Voices. Uh, continuing the uh, really great conversation with Dr. Jerry Schubel, the president and CEO of the Aquarium of the Pacific. And you want to talk about fossil fuels again. What, what, what are you thinking? Well, they, they've caused a very serious situation. We now know that. I think we make a mistake, though, of demonizing fossil fuels. They are responsible for much of the quality of life that we all enjoy, mm -hmm. that our warm and cool buildings that we live in, our electricity, uh, our transportation. Mm -hmm. We now know, though, that we've got to stop using those fossil fuels. And I, and I think that uh, we know the direction that we need to go in, and you don't have to just be beating up all the time on big oil or, or big coal. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm in agreement with you there. that. Uh, we, we, we want to move away from polarizing uh, discussions and approaches because uh, you, you, don't, you don't get make a lot of progress in my no, experience. No. You, you need to get shoulder to shoulder with the oil companies and work out solutions together. And I, and I believe there's willingness there. There's certainly international agreement uh, in the world through the United Nations uh, climate uh, work however there are some outliers yes. and there's still some coalition building to be done but the science is clear of what we need to do and the question now is you know triggering that motivation to do it and that's the good news is we have the science we understand that's right that's the good news we you know in our careers jerry and you and i have you know learned together the, the way i've seen the arc of marine conservation which by extension is earth conservation so when you talk about ocean it's really about the earth is at the beginning, we were so busy trying to figure out what was going on. You know, right. we were just like, something's happening, but we didn't know what it was. And then we identified the problems. Right. Uh, and remember that famous uh, book? I think you gave it to me. It was a book called Marine Biological Diversity. By, it was by AAAS yeah. in the 90s. And they, they had a scientific panel identify five major threats to the ocean. And it was, if I remember them all, climate change was there, biodiversity extinction was there, Habitat destruction was there, uh, eutrophication was there, and there was one or other. But it was but it was an important moment right. because we finally zeroed in on what was what we were doing that was wrong, right. and then we didn't have solutions, right? Right. And that that was where you and I pioneered some together, and with with many other scientists. Uh, it took us about another ten years, I reckon, to get the solutions at the toolbox. Right. And that's where we are now, right? We have the toolbox. Mm. We're still not using those We're not tools. using them yet. And I, and I think having the science and not using it, doesn't, uh, that's not the, the answer. And I'm reminded of two quotes, one from Leo Tolstoy, who said, science doesn't tell us how to live. It has nothing to contribute on moral grounds. And he was right. Science doesn't tell us how to live. That belongs to the general public. But once you decide on the kind of world you want to have and the kind of world ocean we want, then we would be well to heed the advice that the late Nobel laureate Richard Feynman said when he made the comment, you don't improve the quality of a technical decision by asking a lot of uninformed people. 
and we tend to ask a lot of mm. uninformed, well-intentioned people, and that puts us on, I think, on the wrong path. So we have to respect science more and use it mm. more. Wow, that's very powerful. Um, yeah, I agree with you there, and you're, you're helping me now. You're, you're kind of giving me uh, some new ways of looking at this. Yeah. What was that about again? Science is not a moral. Tolstoy said, "Science doesn't tell us how to live. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to contribute on moral grounds." Okay. We both know science can be used for good right. or ill. Right. But and it, the public decides the kind of world we want to live in. That's right. But we confuse goals with how to get there. Yes. And um, so we've got to have greater faith in our scientists and the technology that we have in figuring, in moving us in the direction we need to go. Well, I think you've summarized well that we are at a point in history in the arc of civilization. This is really important, Jerry. I mean, we are at a point well, I, where we know what we're doing. We didn't know right. even 20 years ago what right. we were doing. Right. But we know what we're doing now. And we also know how to fix it. Yes. And to me, it's a, I don't know what, it's a, it's a, it's a travesty mm -hmm that we're not deliberately moving quicker than we are. I, I agree. I, and, uh, there's no excuse. It, it's a, there's no excuse. It's an ethical, moral issue, and um, we need to get on, on with it. We need to do things. I mean, I always like to think, I always, why don't we? I mean, I think political, I think political election cycles are one of them. Politicians that have the authority to make some of these changes right. They only look to the next election cycle, usually, not right. all of them. What if we had a 100-year election cycle? <laughs> you know, they, they would make different decisions, right? <laughs> if you were, if you were re-elected on what happened 100 right. years from now. Or if you were even held responsible for the decisions you made during your time, of, time in office, mm -hmm. so that when, even though you, you leave office, somehow you're accountable. Mm -hmm. What do you think, do you have, what are some of the most consequential, positive, political decisions that were been made in terms of the environment over the last hundred years. Do you, well, I think a lot of them were back in the 1970s. 1972 was a watershed I agree, yeah. shed year uh, when, when that great environmental president, Richard Nixon. <laughs> it's, it's ironic, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, the, the Clean Air Act, yeah. Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Why Act. Why did that happen and, then with him? Uh, what was the... How did that happen? You're right. There was so much well, public policy developed in the United right, States, and then right. it tended to be copied by other countries, right. almost and, verbatim and, in and, some cases. And now we're weakening. And a, and a we lot look back that. now, and he's considered one of our worst presidents <laughs> for other reasons. But he gave us the, the, the that's you're right. That was the why was that with him? Do you know? I, I don't. I don't know. It was a, uh, it was a confluence of, of things. I think mm -hmm. it was Rachel Carson and a lot of yeah, a lot Carson's of things voice all, all just came, happened to come came and, together. And he. And there wasn't any great cost of, of doing it either. So uh, that it, there wasn't a great political cost of doing it. <laughs> so and he had been backed into the corner. So, by so you're telling me now we need another year like Richard Nixon in 1972 <laughs> to save the world <laughs> environmentally. <laughs> no, but uh, we, seen, we need something different than we have right well, now. Well, I think you're right there. Other, other things that come to mind for me, uh, and when you earlier when you described the amorphous nature of the problem, uh, I thought back for moments and thinking about, well, we have solved a few, but they were very specific, yeah. like the uh, ozone Total, right. is a great example. Yeah. Yes. Right? That was a moment where, you, can you tell that story, please? Well, me? you go ahead. Oh, well, yeah. there was a moment where we 
we knew that releasing certain chemicals from that were used as, as accelerants in right. aerosols went up into the higher atmosphere and uh, degraded the ozone layer, which allowed more ultraviolet radiation into the Earth. And in places like Antarctica and New Zealand and Australia, and I lived in New Zealand for a while, it was particularly bad. Yeah. And there, there were special measures taken where you couldn't be outside without a hat and all right. covered up in the middle of summer because there was this ultraviolet radiation coming in that was burning your skin and causing higher rates of skin cancer. Well, we looked at the science in the world and found out what was the problem was, and we stopped using those chemicals. There's a thing called the Montreal Protocol. Yep. And within, what was it, 10 or 20 years? Yeah. If, if we that, saw that, the effect. Right. That was one where the solution, uh, once it was implemented, the, the repair took place quite rapidly. That's not going to be the case for climate change. Are you aware but, of any, any wild solutions that people have for rapid climate change fixes, you know, well, global I, engineering? I, I think, first of all, on the, the emission side, yeah. I think nuclear has to play a, a bigger role. It's the, it's the highest energy density. It's the largest source of clean energy we have. And I would argue that it's the safest uh, source of clean energy we have. If you look at the record of nuclear, and forget about uh, Jane Fonda and the, the recent Chernobyl series, uh, it, <laughs> yes. it, it has a remarkable safety record that has gotten very distorted. I think part of this issue also, though, is dealing with these big problems. These are called wicked problems, as you know. There are no solutions to them, no silver bullets. If you formulate them properly, you can manage them and keep them within bounds. And climate change is certainly one of those. We're, we're not trained. Our universities aren't structured to deal with these kinds of problems very well. A guy named Bernard Forscher wrote a very powerful article a number of decades ago that academia is in the business of making bricks, discrete packets of knowledge. Mm. You get promoted, you get tenured by the more bricks that you make. You don't get promoted and tenured by assembling bricks into configurations that help us deal with these big transdisciplinary wow. issues. And, and um, we need organizations that are dedicated to taking the knowledge that we have, assembling it, formulating it in ways to address some mm. of these big issues. Wow, yeah, you really hit the nail on the head there again. That is, I'm in so much agreement with you that we need, uh, I, I, the way I frame it, but it's the same thing as uh, lateral thinking. We need lateral thinking. Yeah. Uh, we've been siloed in our thinking. We tend to look at one area of problem and try to fix it without realizing that there's a series over here. And it, it's hard to become an expert in everything that needs to be done. No one can no do that. No one can. So it's a, it's a question of coordinating That's that right. knowledge and then making the action. This nuclear, I, I have to ask you though, um, because uh, the listeners are gonna wonder, and I also wonder, what about the waste? Well, what's the what's the what's the solution path? Because it's yeah. okay. The, the waste waste is still an issue, but yep. if you look at the the fourth generation of nuclear, the amount of waste is is far smaller than in, in previous, because they're they're using spent fuel rods also as as fuel. Okay. And if it, again, it's a, it's relative risk. If you think about all of the the solar panels that are just loaded with noxious materials, hazardous yeah. materials. Yeah. They have a lifetime of 20 to 25 years. We have no idea how we're going to dispose of 
those. I didn't know that. And uh, also, what, what kind of material in the solar panel? Do you, do you know? What the, well, what the, lots of hazardous materials, okay. that, and and also with in the construction of of windmills. Okay. And you know, these are masses that are orders of magnitude larger than anything from from nuclear. Now, nuclear, we still need a federal repository, and uh, my hope there'll be some leadership eventually on that. A place to put it. Place to put yeah. it. Place to put it. I um. I saw in a documentary recently talking about this issue, and they you you, you have to think very long term though about yes. this place because it's in some cases it's going to be hundreds to thousands of years, right? Yes, that it has to be contained and and aware of, and there are people already thinking about, okay, if we bury it in this mountain, how do we put information outside this mountain that can be understood by <coughs> another language, another civilization, right. another culture that could be here uh, 10,000 years from now to know that it's dangerous. And it's very it was a very interesting show because right. they were assuming there would be a collapse in, in, in a civilization and in a nation, right. which, it, as it always has happened, languages go away and new ways of thinking, and they, you, you forget stuff. Yeah. And yeah. so then you discover this, and they were working on symbology that they thought would transcend right. Any, do you, do you know about this kind of work? No. Yeah. No. But um, that, those, those are the kind of things right. we have to think about when we think about nuclear waste, right? Is, is long-term storage of the... You have to think about, about that, but you shouldn't be immobilized right, by, right, right. by that, that kind of thinking. Yeah. Because if we don't get on a different track, we're not going to live that long. That's right. That's right. That's right. And unfortunately, it's the... And you and I go back long, far enough. Yeah. Remember the days when we, there were proposals to bury high-level high, uh, nuclear waste on the seafloor near the trenches yep. because they would be then carried yep. down into the central part of the earth. Yep. They wouldn't emerge uh, for several hundred thousand years. If ever, yeah. If, if ever, right. if ever. Right. And, uh, but those ideas were killed. I think the one thing we have to understand is we've got to be very bold in our thinking. Yes. And, and unfortunately, if, if the severity of this problem is anywhere near what we believe it is, and I do believe it's very severe, we've got to try things. We've got to be bold. And uh, unfortunately, most of the environmental movement is to be cautious. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, uh, well, once burned, twice cautious, right? I mean, we've the, 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 the history with the environmental community is that they have uh, feel like they've been misled by uh, businesses over the last industrializations, and in some cases they have, but today we need to be bold, I agree with you. And that trench solution, you know, I, I, I know we've, the weakness in it, as I recall, was that it's not necessarily a steady one-way trip. On the, as, the, as, the, as the seafloor crust, uh, for our listeners, moves in the grand scheme of plate tectonics, seafloor crust goes down into a trench, back into the mantle, and somewhere else, new mantle material comes up, creating new seafloor right. crust. And this is what keeps the Earth dynamic in terms right. of the continental positions. So why not stick this stuff into one of these trenches, down into the mantle, where by the time it comes back, and it may never come back by the nature of how things work, and the, the problem I heard was that sometimes it said that sometimes there's a slippage back and forth, that you might put it down and it'll go down and then it'll come back, or that it could go down and come out of a volcano sooner than you expected. But it seems to me you could work, I think there must be workarounds for those. <laughs> I think there, yeah. Yes, I think there have to be. You'd have to look at yeah, it. You'd have right. to look at it, yeah. Okay, well that's a, that's a 
sobering uh, realization for me, the, the nuclear, because I grew up in an age where people ran from it. And then, yeah. as you said, there's been this uh, media around it, but I, I have tremendous uh, trust in your judgment. So uh, you're seeing nuclear as a, a piece of our future or the I, whole future? Not or? the whole future, yeah. no. I think it has to be, there is no one way right. to deal with this. I, and I, it, and yeah. renewables are an important part of it, but they're not the, the right. whole thing. Right. I think renewables in combination with nuclear yeah. are the best hope that we have. Well, I saw that, uh, I, I agree with you. I, th I saw there was a pie chart somebody made once where they said, listen, this is the future is something like this. And the pie had different right. solutions and right. nuclear was there, solar was there, wind was there, right. ocean currents were there. But what was not there is the release is, is fossil fuels. Right. So right. that's kind of, the, it's like a game, right? right. <laughs> you have these pieces over here and you need to make a pie. How's yeah. it gonna work? And yet the pie chart today the percentage of, of that is accounted for by fossil fuels is still over 80% globally. So we've got a long ways it's to 80, go. Yeah, uh, 80%. Well, that's a, a, a very, very helpful expansion on these ideas, Jerry, and I think there are very few people in the, in the world that could do what you just did for me. So thank you for unpacking that. And I, I wanna, um, you know, come back to uh, a few other things in, in our next segment, but I think we've, we've, uh, I want to, I was going to say, put a ribbon around that, but it sounds too cheery. We've, <laughs> we've, I think we've unpacked that for the moment enough. So thank you for that and uh, look forward to our next one. All right. Thank you. <laughs>